Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Uncensored CMO. It's great to have you with me. Now, while I was out in Cannes a couple of weeks ago, wandering down the Quasette, quaffing some rosé, getting very hot, there was one question that kept on coming up time and time again, almost in every conversation I was having. And that was, why are we not talking about what's going on in the world today? Because unless you've been hiding under a rock, there's been a, quite a lot going on that is giving us some quite significant challenges. Tech stocks around the world are, uh, are down by dramatic amounts. Inflation is uh, rampant at a 40-year high. And supply chains are being disrupted like never before due to, due to war. And so the consequence of all that is marketers are facing some of the biggest challenges I think most of us have probably faced in an entire generation. And it feels like, you know, it can, that was one conversation we weren't having. So I was delighted when I came across JP Caslan and James Hankins talk called The Gravity of E-Commerce. Finally, somebody talking about what's changed in the world and what we have to do and the fundamental importance of grappling with your business model and the role that marketers especially can play in solving some of the uh, commercial challenges that we all face. And look, if the Festival of Cannes teaches us anything, it's the importance of creativity. But the problem is we've defined creativity by an advert. And I think that's wrong because creativity is the most powerful business weapon we all have to solve the challenges that we all face. So let's put our creative brains to use, solving some more fundamental problems. So I thought this talk from JP and James was incredibly timely. So I got them onto the podcast to find out a bit more about why they wrote this and what the presentation was all about and what we as marketers need to be paying attention to right now with the challenges that we all face. So without further ado, let's get into it. Here's my conversation with JP and James about the gravity of e-commerce. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I thought it might be helpful to, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourselves and also how this collaboration that you've been doing over the past few weeks that culminated in the Cannes presentation came about. Yeah. So uh, I'm James Hankins. I am founder of Vice Consulting and also Global Vice President Marketing Strategy and Planning Ooh. at Sage, the accountancy software business. JP? Uh, independent consultant these days, former consultancy executive and lawyer, interestingly enough. I was just going to say, back to your point around how, how did this emerge? And lockdown was a weird thing, wasn't it? And I certainly picked up social media at that point and published a few things. And, and, and JP was this very intellectual kind of strategist in the, the, the social media sphere. I don't know, we just got chatting, didn't we? And sending each other direct messages. And then one day we thought, well, we might as well have a, a Teams and actually chat properly. And it kind of it evolved from there. Is that, that's about right, isn't it, JP? Yeah, I mean, pretty much. I think that's often how these things start. We, we realized we were kind of seeing things the same way. And then we also realized that I think maybe we came at it from different angles, me more so from a fintech angle originally from client work and you perhaps from your more sort of pure e-com angle, but we realized that we we're thinking the same things about the same things basically. So we decided that we should probably try to do some stuff together. And that was a couple of years ago now. I mean, the, 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 the current paper and the can talk is just the latest iteration of that, that collaboration. So we've been doing this for a bit. Because that's what I was wondering, actually, is whether you were responding to the last few months of kind of global economic crisis, or is this something that has been building up 
in response to the pandemic before that? It goes from my perspective way, way back. I wrote a blog post called the the dark side of e-commerce, but I, I just had this nagging, nagging feeling about the business model. And there were all these kind of really weird stories like the 160 day payment terms. If you are a supplier to Gymshark, which means they just have loads of cash for a less than 10 year old business it just seems a bit weird. And the, the alleged links to modern slavery in Leicester by Boohoo and, and the, the ilk. These things kept coming up and so I dived into it to understand actually, you know, why are they getting involved in all this? What is the underlying kind of issue? And it came down to the business model, essentially, the door, the, the, the channel and, and the fundamental issue. So it's, it's not a new thing at all. It's, it's always been there, but I think many people weren't looking hard enough would be the, the, the simplest way of putting it. Hmm. That's so interesting. I, I think you're right. When, when things are going well and there's lots of money in the system and, you know, lots being financed, you, maybe you can get away with it. But I think but I, mean, I think the timing of your talk is very, very relevant because, you know, with, with you know, global economic crisis, the availability of money at the moment is, is changing. I know I had a lunch with a headhunter the other day asking how this kind of CMO market was going. And he said, if you're in the market for a high growth equity you know, CMO gig, forget it. <laughs> he was like, literally, that dried up last year and everyone's looking for the safe haven of profitable businesses where they can actually plan ahead and, and so much. I thought it was quite interesting. But there has been a massive shift, hasn't there? In the, I mean, that's just the job market, but there has been a massive shift. But which me, makes you, I think you're talking incredibly timely. I, mean, I was going to start by saying, of course, um, it was great to be in Cannes, wasn't it, in person? That was a that was a real blast. And and I think one of the conversations I know, you know, everyone was like, so how does it compare? What's going on? And one one comment that came through quite a lot from people I was speaking to is the one conversation we're not having right now is about what we should do in response to the global recession and how the world around us has suddenly changed. And so I thought that was it was good. That's why I was so keen to get you on to talk about your work. Maybe, maybe let's start there then. So talk to me about what is it that has changed in the past few months that, that brings into sharp focus what you guys are talking about now? Well, I mean, the stuff that James was talking about, the fundamental business model, that hasn't changed. It's just that the, the honeymoon is very much over, right? So e-com has been in a steady, nice growth journey for a fair bit of time now, sitting at about 15% year-on-year growth. Then, of course, came the pandemic, at which point consumers had to sort of, quote unquote, pivot to online. And then, of course, companies had to follow suit because that's where all the business was, where all the demand was. Now, the problem is that for businesses is that this growth then slowed down. So it sort of went back and normalized. And so it ended up being something like about a year ahead of where it would have been. That's the, the sort of acceleration that we've seen. Now... At the same time, or thereabouts, some fuckhead in Russia decided to invade their neighbor, right? Which, of course, meant a bunch of problems. So we already have stress in the supply chain, and then we have that situation and a bunch of other things. So what we're seeing right now is a world economy that's going to hell in a handcart. You know, the cost of living is going up, and you have all of these pressures being put on companies in general, but even more so tech companies. And what then happened was that we started to see a shift in sort of the VC narrative. So the kind of companies like Sequoia or Lightspeed or the incubators, all of a sudden they were telling their companies that you're effectively on your own for the next year and a half, at least. 
So companies start panicking. We saw a lot of stock markets fall quite dramatically, especially within tech and e-com. You have companies like Spotify, Facebook, or Meta, or Snapchat, having lost more about 50% of their market cap in the last six months. If you look at e-com businesses like Allbirds, Morgan Parker, and those guys, Zalando, I mean, you're talking two thirds to three quarters of your market, market cap just gone. So what then happens is that because of the underlying problem that still exists, you have all these other pressures being put on organizations. And then what basically happens as you know, some of us may remember from physics 101 is that when you put pressure on something, you have to release that pressure. Otherwise there'll be an explosion. And the problem that we saw, and you know, again, this is going back to what we've done over a couple of years, not least our, our paper from last year called the final mile. But what we saw was basically that companies just did more of the same. And that just created more pressure faster. And so we had to address that, hence this report. One of the issues I know you've pointed out previously within our industries is chasing the, the, the shiny thing. And that was one of the ironies of why is no one talking about this thing when this thing's happening? We were on stage in the Palais just after Vayner's chief exec <laughs> was talking about NFTs and how no one watches TV and, and the juxtaposition and the irony is not lost on us. And we said, I think one of the comments we made was out there is the metaverse in here is the real world. And it, it, it kind of feels like that. the marketing industry as a whole gets heads up around kind of the shiny bits too much versus the practicalities. And, and when I say the marketing world, there are many CMOs out there who don't, who understand business and get on with it. But there's a, you know, the agency world to a degree that there is a sense of this uh, shiny thing, run after it, ignoring what's happening in the real world. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I think that's why I was so keen to have this conversation because there are such fun, I mean, whereas the pandemic felt like a, a temporary kind of adjustment that sort of almost bounced back last year. I know, I mean, if I just take some of the work we do at System One, we sort of, you know, everything went off a cliff, but then it very quickly came back again as people came back in the market and started advertising again. It feels very different. It feels like there's been a structural, more sort of tectonic, or whatever the phrase is, kind of shift in the market. Like we might be in a, in a, in a different cycle now, which I think is I don't think people are waking up to in quite the same way. Whereas the pandemic, it was like, it was really immediate, really obvious. And we all pivoted, as you said before, didn't you? Whereas now it feels like we're slightly sleepwalking at the moment. It feels like to me is that we're not having a conversation about what's changed and what's changing and what the future is going to look like. And the stock market, like you say, JP, has already radically written down the, you know, the future value of a lot of companies. But I don't know we in marketing are... Are, are addressing it or, or responding to it. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I think the problem is that, to James's point, that, that a lot of marketers are caught up in all the shiny, shiny things. I mean, if you ask a marketer to look at a financial report and tell you what it's about, you know, you're probably not going to get something particularly verbal back. But I mean, if you just look at the macroeconomic factors, we're looking at an overall global GDP growth of roughly 3.6%, according to the IMF. If you look at the World Bank, it's close, probably close to 2.9, with 2.5% in the EU and the, and, and the US, respectively. At the same time as this, we're seeing just 
massive inflation, right? We're seeing 40-year highs in the US and the UK. And of course, that means that the average cost of, of living goes up quite dramatically, you know, the equivalent of roughly 461 bucks in the in the US. And last I saw something like 410 pounds per month in, in the US, uh, in the UK. And so what happens is we, we are currently in a situation where there's a risk of what is called stagflation. So stagflation is basically a, a term that economists use to describe a situation whereby you have low growth, but high inflation. So why, why is that bad? Well, it basically means that people lose their jobs because the growth is slow, but the prices are still really, really high. So people are hit really hard. And if you're not paying attention to this, if you're a marketer, you're not doing your job. That's just a fact, you know, you have to pay attention to these things. Quite right. And I mean, I mean, James, I know you're doing a, a kind of client side role now, of course, aren't you in, in Sage? And I know, you know, if I put my client side hat on, you, you've got raw material prices going up, you've got your margin squeezed, it becomes hard sometimes to pass on price increases. Everyone's telling you to chop your advertising because we've got to, you know, make sure our dividend gets paid this month and that sort of thing. You know, there are pressures, I think, on the marketing function like there never have been before. And so we've got to be all over this stuff because otherwise, you know, we'll find ourselves in a losing position very quick. What should marketers be doing in response to these big shifts? Well, I mean, there's so much, essentially so much. Yeah, yeah, small question, James. It was, yeah, <laughs> if you could just solve this for solve, on behalf of the world. Yeah, I'd... I mean, this, this, and this was the part where I suppose in our talk anyway, in, in Cannes, there was a good cop, bad cop dynamic. JP kind of set up the problem, which was, which was all these things that we've been talking about. And then I came on as, as, as hope, as a, as a ray of light from a marketing perspective. And I, when we talk about marketing, we mean proper four P's marketing. We don't mean just a bit of advertising. We mean, okay, what can you do with price? How are you innovating your products? And that's where a lot of this actually sits. These, we call them mitigations because where it, where it comes from is there is a fundamental reversal in the, the, the kind of the structure of how people get products in an e-commerce world. And this is the, the gravity we talk about in the, in the talk. And we talk about that the shift from a many to one world where you had a store and you could optimize to that store and you know, you knew how much was going out, how much would go in and the vans were maximized. So your marginal costs were minimized. That's the old world. And the new world is one the store or the brand too many. It's very, very hard to optimize because you don't know where this is landing kind of, and that's the reversal. And when we talk about kind of many to one, one to many, that's what we're saying. And that has a cost gravity associated with it because of this marginal cost efficiency issue. So we talk about how do you mitigate for that? Cause it's never going to be, it's going to be so hard to make that efficient, which is why there's all this fanfare about drones and removing human kind of cost from that process. And anyone who's lived in a big city and has seen hired bikes piling up in the waterways where they've been disposed, knows exactly what will happen to these drones when they're operationalized <laughs> and put out in market. So we talk about four Ps mitigating for that cost gravity of the flip from a many to one to a one to many world. That's kind of where I ended up going with the, the kind of, I, I provide hope and, 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 and there's many ways. I think one, somebody summarized or said something really interesting when they came out, they said, so basically you're, you're just predicting the absolute death of kind of free delivery and free returns. 
that's it. It's gone. And then in fact, actually, we're seeing the kind of signals of that already. Now, some people out there may think, well, why is that marketing's fault? Why, what have marketing got to do with that? Well, that's a fundamental price kind of issue and a communication challenge. So that's two of the P's already. Because mm. you're going to have to raise the prices and you're going to have to justify it. I'm not saying it's easy, but at its heart, that is a marketing problem. Value in the brand. Is your brand strong enough to justify the increase in price, to justify the price of returns? So you, that's where kind of I came in with a bit of hope in that marketing absolutely has these huge four levers to mitigate for that changing the, the cost gravity yeah. of an e-commerce world. So, so just, just just role play it a little bit with me. So previously, I would go and buy a new T-shirt down at a store, right? And I'd expect to be able to go and return it for free if it didn't fit quite right or I'd come back and it was the collar was falling off or something, right? Now I can, I can get that T-shirt from all manner of different sources, third parties, direct, on subscription if I want to. But what you're saying is, is because the economics are, are broken and, and there are many sources of supply, that I might have to pay for that return process because the margins are, are so tight. Have, have I roughly understood that sort of analogy? Yeah, broadly, uh, JP, actually, at this, this point, you, you articulate a really nice referring back to marketing's obsession with the long and the short and what we yeah. have here. Yes, so, so basically free returns at the moment are used as an acquisition tool, broadly speaking. And so what happens when we lose an acquisition tool, when we lose short-term sales? But on the other hand, if we get people to pay for their returns, we improve our margins and thereby our sort of long-term profitability. We improve the odds of it being better anyway. Which basically means, again, that as, as James sort of alluded to, is we have a long versus short situation. You know, the short-term sales loss of, of charging people for returns versus what it'll do to your profitability long-term. So you have to think about those kinds of things. And, and um, the other thing I was going to say as well is that there's a difference in how often, how frequently people return items when they buy things in physical stores versus when they buy stuff online. And of course, it has to do with fitting and things like that. But when, in our analysis, we found that the, it, for traditional physical retail, you're looking at return rates in the single digits, typically between 3 to 8%. In e-com, it's between 15 and 40%, right? And if you already have a business model where the cost gravity, as James was talking about, is fundamentally different, adding 40% returns on top of that. And we even found one instance where a company had a 75% return rate. I mean, good really? luck with profitability. Yeah. <laughs> of course, it just makes the equation all that more difficult to solve. That's just the fact. It's so fascinating because I, I would have, because if I had a situation the day actually where I got charged for a turn and, and it didn't fit me properly. And I, I was irritated by that because I'm like, I'm paying £3.95. It's not a lot, I know, but I'm paying £3.95 because they've sent me something that I don't think fits properly. You know what I mean? So why wouldn't you price that into the into the price of the good in the first place so that I don't even realize that I'm paying for the service up front? Do you see what I mean? It feels like a tax if you apply it afterwards Abs rather than part of the service. Absolutely. And th th this is part of part of the, the mitigations and the challenges that are that are up for you. Because if you, if you think about the reverse, right, if you had to return something, especially the petrol prices at the moment, You'd probably be paying three pounds fifty. You certainly pay in that. I would. Yeah, for a train <laughs> train ticket anyway to go back in. But you then take on board that cost very clearly, as opposed to handing it over in the com world. Now they have to work out a way of getting it back. So there is a, as you said, a tactic 
tactic there to mitigate around delivery and, and, and returns. I mean, one of the other big mitigations is an ad network that we've seen that all over, right? The, the grand mitigator, Amazon, used to, well, a non-profitable global retail business. It's profitable in the US, but it's always been mitigated with AWS, right? They've cross-subsidized one product with another. They've now bought a huge ad network in because that's high margin and it allows them to cross subsidize. They've lost cheap capital, but they've, they've bought an ad network in. So that's another opportunity is to monetize your kind of the eyeballs or your, your footfall or your fingerfall and sell an ad network. And that, that appears to be the way that many are going, whether that actually provides value to the people buying the ads is another matter entirely, whether it's incremental or whether it's just a uh, at, at a tax or whether it's even actually, you know, worth doing, but it's these sorts of, these are big, big questions. There's a load of big business model questions within product and marketing are brilliantly placed as the guardian of the consumer to understand the best routes to do that. That's why we think actually with all the doom and gloom, marketing is perfectly placed to, to understand this and at and form a way out for business if they do it right. Just another point on that, which I think is a very important point, is that you have to look at these things holistically, right? Rory had a great quote the other day. He was talking about splitting media and creative. And he said, it's kind of like you're cutting up a Sudoku puzzle puzzle in nine different pieces, handing it to nine different people saying, solve this thing, right? You need seeing the entire picture in order to solve it. And it's exactly like that. So to your question about, you know, paying 395 or whether to return something that didn't fit, you can mitigate it in all kinds of ways, right? You can put it on the price, sure, but you also have to consider the fact that it's not just the cost of the return, it's everything else involved, all the marginal costs that are associated with it. In fact, certain companies in the US now are actually considering paying customers enough to return their items, right? But on the other hand, if you have, you know, if you build alternative revenue streams like James was talking about through ad revenue, whatever, you can start to make up those margins and then all of a sudden maybe you don't need to charge people for the returns. But because it's an easy thing to do and, and probably one of the better levers that we have, at least in the short term, then you're probably going to need to do that. I was going to, I was going to say, I, I, I love this conversation because I think it's so easy, isn't it? As Marcus, we, you know, well, we were in Cannes and we were talking about one of the P's, weren't we? And that, that's the thing is that we, we seem to always spend our energies over the promotional P, forgetting actually product place, you know, all the rest of it are just as important. And actually, they're the kind of solutions I think we're going to need, aren't we, in the current climate to, to address some of the more fundamental issues, which I say relate to business model, don't they? Yeah. More than... Yeah, I mean this. This is it. We 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 talk about e-commerce is a is is place, right? It's it's a channel. It's yeah. not a business model. That that's this, and I think people have got confused between DTC and e-commerce. And the DTC doesn't mean what people think it means. People have forgotten about the value of wholesale. There's a reason why they're hugely kind of profitable wholesale business. We 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 use Nike as a brilliant example, right? Nike came out of the pandemic fanfare of our ah, night direct <clears throat> is growing at, you know, double, triple digits year on year. And we're doing great as part of our shift towards, you know, 50% direct versus 50% wholesale. They still do about 65% of their business wholesale. And when we were investigating this, we discovered that actually Nike direct is gross margin negative in all but one of the years since they, since they shifted their strategy in 2017, 
Do you know why? Because it's bloody hard. It is really hard to do this channel e-commerce well and to do it profitably. It's not an easy thing, which is why people, you know, go to, if they go to a Shopify and Shopify's largest ever acquisition a few months ago was exactly in this space. It been, basically it's a backend kind of fulfillment distribution network that people then kind of rent. It's really hard to do e-commerce. If one of the biggest businesses in the world can't make it work at gross margin, not net margin, gross margin, that should set up the challenge. Now we envisage like doing very well in the next couple of years, because they are spending billions on this fulfillment network, but not everyone can do that. And so you begin to understand, right. Okay. Well, what are your options? What can you do? Where can you begin to kind of build out capability or where should you just go? You know what? We're going to, we're going to use Amazon. That's going to be our distribution. And we're going to have to work, work out mitigation around that because no one leaves cash on the table when you're dealing with Amazon or Shopify. They ain't going to allow mm -hmm. it. So you've got to be very, very sensible about this. It's profit over everything. Yeah. And I, and I think that's where your your work and what you said up front, JP, about the that's where it's suddenly the, the the rubbers hit the road, hasn't it? Because I think we've been funding businesses for many years on the potential future, haven't we? And now suddenly we've got a global recession. Well, well, if if I can quote the the famous quote in your uh, your Jerry Maguire, "Show me the money." I love that <laughs> because you know you 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 can't run a non profit business forever, and 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 I think this is this is this is a wake up call, isn't it, for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I would say so. There are a couple of things in that. So one of the things is that, but a lot of the the, the players that have been funding this kind of the profitless prosperity that we've seen are now starting to change their tune and they are asking for returns, which is a big thing. The other thing is that what we've seen over the last, I don't know, maybe half a decade, at least probably a decade, without going too deep into investment circles. But what we've seen is, is a shift from what you might call traditional value investment, which is where you identify undervalued assets, you acquire them, and then they wait for the market to realize its mistake. And you've see, seen that shift towards what we call the greater full theory practice. So what that means is that people instead acquired highly overvalued assets. They're seeing their prices through media and on social media and so on. And then they basically pray to God that someone takes the, the, the assets off their hands before the market realizes its mistake. And what we're seeing right now is that the market is starting to realize its mistake. So that is, that is a big part of it as well. So you have all these companies that do need to become profitable. The problem is that when you're talking about strategy and not to get too theoretical about it, but when you talk about strategy, when you create companies, when you build companies from the ground up, when you're doing business strategy, you're basically creating what are called path dependency effects. So when you look at, there's a huge study that we referenced published last year where they looked at over 650,000 companies and they looked at growth first companies versus profit first companies. And what they saw was that if you're growth first, you're very unlikely to ever become profitable because of the path dependency effects. So, and it, and you know, you could say the same thing about companies sort of quote-unquote pivoting to, to purpose, being purpose-driven. It's the same thing. If you're set up without being purposeful, then it's very, really difficult to become purposeful and so on. But again, so you have the situation whereby a lot of companies have to become profitable, but it's statistically very unlikely and you have all these demands. So we're probably going to see, I wouldn't say that there's a bubble on the horizon, but you're going to see a lot of companies that get need to get their shit together really quickly. That's really interesting because I suppose the dream is with high growth companies, you're taking share, you're building a customer base and, and what you're doing by 
focusing on growth is getting faster than you would otherwise if you'd focus on profit but the end goal would then be to translate that market strength into profit by realizing all that profit but from what you've said the path dependency means you never actually get to the and now we're going to realize the profit moment no exactly statistically speaking that is true i think it's it's something like two to three hundred percent less likely that you're going to turn a profit if you're growth first if you created growth first the other thing as well is that when you look at the quote-unquote disruptive narrative, you're looking at companies that, exactly to your point, try to gain a lot of market share. And then they reach a point where they can basically basically take advantage of economies of scale, yeah. or so the theory goes, yeah. or create other revenue streams. The problem is that that's a lot more difficult than people would have you believe. I mean, just look at Uber and what they're doing with Uber Eats and all of those things, and nothing is profitable, right? And and again, you know, that's been the, the narrative for quite a bit now, but the people involved the investors are starting to change their tune. And so all of the companies that rely on them have to do that as well. I mean, God knows, even even the CEO of Uber, speaking of Uber, even they are saying that they need to get their unit economics in order. And they're the poster child for, you know, the kind of cash devouring profit making machine or profit loss making machine, I should say, for, you know, however long. It's, it's yeah, it's a huge shift. I mean, and then you've got that with food delivery. I was going to say, you've also got it with, with secondhand car buying as well, haven't you? Like with like Kazoo and Cinch. And that, I mean, the amount of money that is going in to, you know, it, it, I suppose it's like, you know, back in, you know, what was it when the phone companies got deregulated? And remember when 118 came out and it was like a scramble to replace, you know, the phone directory with a, with a thing and the amount of money they got spent to get to land grab. And then you got comparison sites and, and, and the whole thing. And yeah, the latest one seems to be secondhand cars. So I love that category. And I'll, I'll ask, you, ask you a question because it should be fairly easy. Which business do you think is going to win in that? secondhand kind of cut the one that already does 1 million car sales a year or the one that does 70,000 and I bet you didn't know which one does a million I I'm guessing kazoo does 70,000 am I right yeah he says the one that does a million I'm guessing is an independent retailer I, d- I haven't heard of no it's I'm, business I'm... behind cinch cinch is ah. owned by British car options who also own we buy any car and are one of the largest used car and new car hauliers in the country, in Europe. And this is something that we picked up time and time again, actually. We call it the vegan sausage roll prince. And we call it the vegan sausage roll from Greg's, Economist Northeast's finest bakery goods company. And the reason why we use these, so what, what have they got to do with distribution and, and fulfillment and e-com? Well, at the heart of their strategy, is a statement which is simply, we will build a business with operations that support 2,000 outlets. That was their kind of ambition back in 2030. Uh, one of their four strategic pillars was to have a world-class operations that support that. And then they've built from that outwards. If you think about what we've talked about, kind of fulfillment, operations, et cetera, et cetera. All the players that are doing really, really well at the moment, the next of this world, kind of even the AO.coms, they have a legacy in this fulfillment operations distribution area. Next directory, kind of 1998 pre-e-commerce revolution. They have the corporate understanding. It's the same with Cinch. They have the distribution network because that's where the cost lies. That's where if you don't have that capability, you're going to be building it like Nikar for billions or renting it from a, a Shopify. And, 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 and that's 
that's the thing to watch out for. And that tells also a huge opportunity for business models. Because if you've got that, if you've got a network, you could open it up. You could open up to other brands as next to Tesco's mm. bought Booker. That's opened up to other brands. Like there's ways of doing it, open it up and, and, and mitigating your own e-commerce or the, your own e-commerce costs by renting out your fulfillment to other brands. I mean, Tesco's do 6 billion in e-commerce revenue and make barely any profit. It's less than 0.1% off that. So they buy Booker and they do other things. Sainsbury's monetize their square footage. You can see the evolutionary possibilities of kind of the future today by looking at the best players and how they're mitigating and kind of borrowing and, and, and copying and, and there's, there's plenty of evidence out there that these, these businesses that are founded on that, that expertise do well. That's really interesting, isn't it? The, 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 yeah. I, I love the sort of traditional meets modern, you know, sort of bricks and mortar almost coming back in one sense, isn't it? Because there's, so do you think there's like an overcorrection? Maybe because I mean, I, I, the interesting. I wonder with Cinch and Kazoo because I imagine they've they've got similar media spend. They've got similar sort of front of house business model. But with Cinch, they they own the car auction system, do they? In terms of where they get the used cars from to then go and sell. So they've integrated the supply chain effectively. Have they? Whereas Kazoo is just buying on the open market at the rate. Yeah, they're beginning to build out. They bought some forecourts not so long ago, but they, they've got, I mean, they were massively overvalued. Alex Chesterman, who, who is the lead kind of CEO, very bright man. I've worked with him a number of times. If we look at his other launch, Zoopla versus Rightmove, Rightmove dominate that market and have the network effects, which means that Zoopla will never catch up. And so there is this, this kind of, what he's trying to do is overcome the, the fulfillment weakness by making them so strong, but the fulfillment weakness is an anchor and you can't actually, you can't outpunch that. You can't outpunch distribution. You can't outpunch being able to get someone the product tomorrow. Yeah. It's, it's almost like your business model isn't set up right from the beginning. So yeah, it's, it is a, a big, big challenge, which is again, back to marketing, business models, product. Yeah. Wow. Huge, huge opportunity. Well, look, I love what you're saying earlier about, you know, th this is an opportunity for marketers, isn't it, to take ownership of the business model and not be seen as the, the comms department, which so often they are, you know. And, and, and look, that, that's, that, that's what I, I love, you know, about marketing is that of all the functions in, in the business, marketing should be the one that's consumer-centric, should be looking forward, should be building strategy, positioning, innovation, price, the whole mix sort of thing. So it's a wonderful opportunity. Well, maybe to maybe to round it off, where do we go from here? Because I love this this kind of practical conversation we're having now about how marketing can help solve business problems, particularly as the world is changing around us at the rate it is. What should we be doing as an industry and what can we do collectively to to you know support? Oh, wow. So I, I think one of the things is to understand, marketers really have to understand their business model and how they make profit. And they look at risk uh, within that relative to the changing market. And they build, so there's, there's a, almost an internal understanding view versus the external, what everyone's kind of going through at the moment. And it, it, it almost, I hate that 
the consumer centric mindset because you need a bit of both. You need to understand your business and what's happening. We we need to become a lot more sophisticated, transforming kind of the commercial realities of the world into creativity and producing solutions. That I think we lost that a few years ago within the marketing world. And it's a, it's a clarion call that this is an opportunity. It's quite selfish because it's quite nasty out there. But there is a huge, like that is it, commercial creativity. There has never been more of a need for that in the last kind of 12 years, arguably. And then, I mean, I'm not going to say ever because that's ridiculous, but post financial crash, there's never yeah. been a better time, never been a more important time for marketing to step up with creative thinking. Incredible. Yeah, but in a, I can I agree completely. And I think the point about commercial creativity is a key one because when you're doing these kinds of mitigations, you need to essentially run parallel safe to failure experiments and not to, you know, promote my own upcoming book soon to be coming in fine bookstores everywhere too much. But basically the way to do it is rather than just going, no, we're just going to do this one thing and go all in on planning on that thing. You basically need to create the outer boundaries that are, okay, so we're not going to do that, but within these two lines in the sand, we're going to try stuff out because to James's previous point, the stuff that Nike can do, for example, Nike can do, but doesn't mean that anyone else can do it, at least not at that scale. So you need to try different things out. And if you want just a very sort of a crash course on how to do this, look at Next's annual report, because they will tell you what they do. And I can tell you, they say explicitly that they do not do strategic planning at all. It's all emergent. And there's a lot to learn from, from Next, because they are quite open with it, which is, it's an, it's an interesting approach, but it's admirable, I'd say. Very good. I like that. That's a, that's a top tip. Next annual report. Actually, you reminded me of the creativity, but I, I, I love what you're saying there. But on the on the, the, the creativity to solve commercial challenges, I, well, I had, we had a podcast a while ago with Kev Chesters, and we were talking about how to be more creative. And one of the bits of prep Kevin and I did before, I said, let's write down the five most creative things we've ever done, right? And I wrote, I wrote down my five, and I realized only one of them involved an advert. But because we associate creativity with advertising, we, we just spent, I mean, hence the, you know, being at Cannes, but, you know, creativity has always got to be delivered in a commercial context. And actually, when I, when I sat and thought about it, my most creative moments were actually what may be perceived as very boring organizational design solutions or routes to market or kind of the way in which deals were done or something like that. And, and I think that's the challenge to marketers to, you know, spend less time in necessarily the kind of ad agency brainstorming more time reconfiguring the business model to you know take on the challenge that we're, we're all facing right now because that's what's going to keep us in jobs and and hopefully keep the economy flying and keep us able to go and afford to go out to can next year <laughs> you know <laughs> well maybe we can celebrate you know business model creativity in a year's time or something invent a can for that that would be nice wouldn't it it would yeah it that'd would. be great it, it does come across a bit doom and gloom when we talk about the, the sort of the gravity of the world situation. But to James's point, the fact of the matter is that there's probably not a single individual in the organization better equipped to deal with this than the marketer. Yeah. So there's a huge opportunity ahead. We just need to grab that opportunity and run with yeah. it. Do you know what? I, I, I did some research about 18 months ago, just in the middle of the pandemic, some research on the role of the CMO. And what was really fascinating was that actually what the pandemic did is thrust the CMO into the center of the business strategy rather than being on the edge. 
it, you know, it was really interesting because before I think, I mean, I think James, you might have talked about, you know, the, 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 the role of the CMO being kind of a bit on the side of the business doing the comms bit. Actually, what the pandemic did is put the CMO back in the hot seat, you know, trying to solve business problems. And I think that's the opportunity we find ourselves right now because all the other functions are not going to, the finance director, the IT director, supply chain director, those people are not going to be putting their hands up and, and, and suggesting the solutions. I mean, they might, but I, I think it's down to the marketer to, to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, you know, the need to, 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 to your point on is that you need to understand your business model and your business strategy. And because at the, at the end of the day, what we're doing in marketing is we're trying to make the business as a whole more successful, right? That's our job. Yeah. So we need to understand the direction that the, the organization as a whole is heading in so we can actually ensure that we're pulling it in, in the right direction. So we do need to go back and, and look at the, at the business strategy or the business model and understand the context in which we act and start with that. I mean, James touched upon it earlier, but start with where you are at the moment and try to maximize the evolutionary potential of the present, right? Understand where you are, not what people are saying about whatever company in whatever outlet you start where you are and then you build out and so you, you need to do your job that's basically it but the, the again the the basic premise is just you're very well equipped to actually become the hero of your organization yeah. if you do it and do it well you're quite right i mean my, my own personal lesson from the last few weeks actually has been my, my instinct has always been to go short term default to quickly how can we sell more and actually what i've value doing in the last even the last few days is stepping back going hang on a second let's do a bit a quick bit of strategy here on what should we be doing where should we be going how can we change what we're doing and so on and that's felt liberating because you know it's just you just realize pause for thought you know things are changing around i need to need to rethink things Great. Gentlemen, it's been a real blast. Thank you for sharing some of the thinking behind your wonderful can talk. If people want to get hold of your talk, it's available via Walk, I believe, isn't it? Yes. So I'm not sure where this goes out, but on July 13th, it'll be freely available for everyone. Otherwise, you need to be a paying subscriber, but it's on Walk. And we have, of course, the big thing, our white paper that actually goes in depth a lot more than we have been doing now which should come out in September also on work. Brilliant. It's a, it's a fascinating read, everybody. There's some amazing data points in there and, and it's very eye-opening. So I encourage you all to go and check it out. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me. Thank, thank you very much. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to the Uncensored CMO. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with JP and James. I certainly did. I thought they were really on something quite important. Do go check out their talk. Uh, it's available via Walk. Um, if you look them up on LinkedIn, um, they have got links through to it as well. So go do check that out. Um, if you enjoyed the Uncensored CMO and would like to find out more and never miss an episode, then please do go and subscribe and then be informed as soon as episodes come out. Um, if you want to find me, I'm on Twitter at Uncensored CMO and you can find me over on LinkedIn as well where I'm under my normal name of John Evans. That's John without an H. Uh, would love to hear from you. Please do leave me a review, drop me some ideas and if you've got any guest suggestions, please do let me know. It's wonderful to have you with me and I very much look forward to you joining me next time. Thanks everyone.